We'd like to thank our sponsors, Glow Botanica, a company whose mission is to increase hormonal wellness awareness through education and create natural effective products for every phase of a woman's life. In partnership with Hormone University, Glow Botanica is committed to educating women so that they can advocate and take charge of their own hormonal health. Globotonica offers naturopathic solutions like tummy butter, which helps soothe all symptoms connected with hormonal imbalances, so you can finally glow from the inside out. Discover Globotonica and head to globotonica.com to check out the product tummy butter. You can take advantage of the special offer for Gateways to Awakening audience members with the promo code GATEWAY10. And don't forget to check out Hormone University to learn about hormonal health. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. In today's episode, I speak with Catherine Woodward Thomas, the New York Times bestselling author of Calling in the One, Seven Weeks to Attracting the Love of Your Life, and Conscious Uncoupling, Five Steps to Living Happily Ever After. She's an award-winning marriage and family psychotherapist, and over the past two decades, Catherine has had the honor of teaching hundreds of thousands of people from all corners of the globe to create conscious, loving relationships. Catherine also trains and certifies people to become certified calling in the one coaches and or conscious uncoupling coaches. She's a billboard charting number one iTunes jazz artist with her CD Lucky in Love. Um, So I'm so excited to welcome you to the show. You are a woman of many talents, Catherine. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. So Catherine, I wanted to kick it off. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, For our audience, uh, before the show started, we actually uh, connected a bit and I had mentioned to Catherine that I actually read Calling in the One um, and soon after had met my partner. So I'm just excited to dive into the work of Calling in the One. Um, So in your words, what does that mean to you, Calling in the One? Well, I think there's an implication Um, that the one is really the right relationship for you to be in, the one that is going to elevate the quality of your life and help you to realize your potentials and, you know, really make your life happy and healthy and well in a way that allows you to bring forth the fullness of who you are in this world and participate fully and contributing in the ways that you're called to contribute. Um, And I think that uh, when we're talking about the the calling in part, uh, I think that it really speaks to the internal process of preparing for love, of shedding old baggage, of maturing in ways that would allow us to really meet that date with destiny fully prepared Because I think, Yasmin, every relationship is kind of a spectrum of possibilities. So we have this fantasy that's just about meeting the right person. But in Calling in the One, which is this 49-day internal journey of preparation to be in a great relationship, it's not just about 
meeting that person, it's becoming the right person. So it's, it's really um, kind of resolving certain patterns of the past that are born from early childhood wounds and traumas, and really getting clear about what your life is about, what you're committed to, what the possibilities are that you hold for contribution, for creativity, and starting to live that pathway so that the person you meet can really see who you are and is on board with that. And so um, I think, you know, in the new, in the old paradigm of marriage, the criteria for the one was that he have a good job and he didn't drink too much and he smelled pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and that was great. You know, there was back in the 60s, there was this study done where co-eds were asked if you met your if you met a man who had all the qualities you were looking for in a husband but you did not love him would you marry him and nearly 80% said they would so you can see how much we've changed since then and um, so we really are now looking for so much more than our grandparents ever looked for uh, we want a spiritual partner we want um, someone whose personality gels with ours we want a shared sense of humor. We want our best friend. We want wonderful, delicious sex. We want a financial equal or superior. So we have all these things that we're yearning for. And that requires us to really grow ourselves internally, to become who we would need to be to both attract that to us and then be able to sustain a relationship that's really characterized by growth and fulfillment, happiness, and health. Mm, yeah. And I, I want to double click on the spiritual partnership aspect of what you just said. And thank you so much for that response. That was really powerful. And I think the piece of it for me that, you know, was so um, dramatic for me was, was knowing that I had to shift my own internal world in order to shift my external world. And your book really beautifully helps people through that process with the prompts, with the journaling. Um, and so I'm curious about the spiritual partnership piece, because I think a lot of people don't actually know what that means. And so I'm curious in your words, like what does it mean to have a spiritual partnership? That's such a deep question. Oh my gosh. And nobody's <laughs> ever asked me that. Thank you. First of all, you can't have a relationship with another person that's better than your own relationship with yourself. So a lot of what we're doing in the calling in the one, um, in the calling in the one journey is really helping to correct our relationship with ourselves, which has to do with engaging certain growth and development that maybe we didn't ever get a chance to do when we were young. Some of the patterns that we struggle with are really inside of habitual ways of relating that were kind of adaptive to the the traumas of our home. You know, our father left and our mother was depressed, so we learned to become a caregiver, that kind of strategy to survive. Very clever of us at the age of seven, but uh, quite a trap when, you know, at the age of 27 or 37, when you're trying to actually have a healthy relationship. If you're whole orientation to life is giving to 
get or, you know, thinking that you have to be the one who overgives and overfunctions in the relationship in order for it to work. So that's a, a whole thing that we're unpacking and calling in the one so that you're, you're almost sourcing yourself from the future um, as opposed to the past. You know, most of us kind of unconsciously create relationship from the past and calling in the one we start with the possible future and the possible you of that future fulfilled. I am a person who has good boundaries. I'm a person who communicates freely. I'm a person whose heart is open. I'm a person who knows when to say no. I'm a person who knows what I feel and shares those feelings. You know, so there's a developmental journey where we start to engage the growth that was maybe missing for us that would allow us to have a really high level relationship. You start unpacking spiritual partnership on the simplest level. Spiritual partnership is is two people who come together inside of uh, a shared devotion to truth, a shared devotion to growth, where discovering truth between one another and, and growing together is more important than I'm right and you're wrong or, you know, getting comfort or getting my way in the relationship or, you know, we really have gone from what is we might call a role based model of love back in the 50s and 60s. We have a lot of images of that where there was really one person in the family who got to be fully expressed. It was usually dad and mom had to kind of disappear herself to to to, you know, bolster up dad's life. And I think that both partners back then were sacrificing for their children, but it was really about compromise and about disappearing ourselves and moving into a sense of obligation to family. So there's so many things that's beautiful about that. And there's a lot of the world is still functioning inside of that. So I never want to disparage the beauty and the goodness of, you know, people sacrificing their lives for their children. You know, I, I am moved to tears by that. And What's happening now is that, um, and and particularly in the Western world, the developing Western world, is that self-actualization and personal development has really become our new collective goal. And in very ways, it's at odds with the old model of relationship, um, where one time we would just stay together for the sake of the kids. You know, now we're looking at, you know, really kind of engaging where we're not satisfied, where we're not fulfilled, how to make this work, kind of the partners are coming together inside of a higher ideal of win-win and we get to support each other to actualize our potentials. So we're coming together inside of a different aspiration than the old model marriage. So you might say we went from a role-based to a soul-based relationship model in the last 50 years. And I think that this term spiritual partnership is really trying to capture that. My dear friend, Polly Young Eisendrath, who's just, you know, one of my favorite writers about love, uh, has a book called Love Between Equals. And she really makes a case for uh, recognizing that never before have we ever had a model for marriage, for partnership, where both people are holding equal power in the relationship. And that there's ways that we need to develop in order for that to go well, because our expectations have been elevated, but not necessarily our capacities yet. So we're all kind of 
you know, we're reading a lot of books, we're going to seminars, we're uh, going to do work together with therapists and coaches and all sorts of things. So there's a, a beautiful growth spurt that's happening. But you and I both know that sometimes that looks like a bit of chaos. Uh, we're, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? so we're also going through a lot of divorces <laughs> because of this. Um, so we're in transition. But it's important that we look at love inside of an evolutionary context. Um, love the way we know it. And the way we expect it to be is a relatively new phenomenon on the planet. Um, it, it, even the criteria of love, personal love, as the criteria for marriage is only 200 years old on planet Earth. And we've been here for about 30,000 years. So that's, that's quite a long time we've had in the model of, you know, kind of suck it up because marriage means property and, the, you know, the, the exchange of family assets and power and all sorts of things like a chess game. <laughs> so this is, this is new and we're still learning how to do it. So I have job security for life in that regard. <laughs> Yes. Wow. You know, it's interesting because it feels like the model of the world is in contradiction to this idea of love between equals in many ways. Um, you know, women are not compensated as much as men. There's still a major pay gap uh, in terms of access to power and influence. I mean, things have definitely been changing, but not as fast as I think we would have, we would all like it. So it's, it is an, a very confusing time and I think a very confusing notion of having equality in relationship when it seems like the outside world is anything but equal. So Yeah. Well, this is why I offer conscious uncoupling. And I know we're talking about <laughs> calling in the one, but, but, but it is a very confusing time. And the ground rules uh, that we once kind of just took for granted was that this is how the world works. don't really apply anymore. And uh, unless you're in a very traditional culture where those rules for dating, mating, and marriage are pretty much laid out, um, you are really needing to rely on really learning how to discern what's healthy versus what's not healthy. And to learn how to do your own um, your own work in in maturing yourself, capable of creating the kind of relationship that your heart is hungry to have. Right, right. Oh well, um, Catherine, I want to talk a little bit about your own journey, and you talk about your own journey in the book. And I just was so moved by so much that you shared, um, and I'd like to talk about some specific moments. Um, one in particular is when, and I'm paraphrasing this because I read the book now years ago, um, when your friend, I think, called you and said, you know, why are you choosing to be single? Because I think a lot of people uh, talk about why things didn't work out. You know, they sort of go back into these mental models like, oh, is it me? What's, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, why did this person and I not work out? Where... I think it was the moment where your friend had kind of pointed the responsibility back towards you in choosing this and choosing to be single. And I just thought that to me was like the most powerful sentence in the book, you know, because at the time I think I myself and a couple other women that I knew um, were doing this work together. And it was, it was just such a moment of like, yeah, there, like there's probably an unconscious 
uh, decision here where this is a choice for sure. It's a choice. So, um, yeah. So can you elaborate on that? I love that you're pointing to that because it's the foundation of the whole program. And most of us who have struggles in relationship, um, and certainly struggles finding the right relationship or keeping the love that we find, um, we feel pretty victimized. And we feel maybe victimized by the crazy dating culture now, feel victimized by how hard internet dating is and what a objective, how objectified we can feel and ill-treated um, in that arena. I think, though, that most of us are now pretty psychologically sophisticated, so really we feel victimized by the traumas of the past that keep showing up in the present, right? So my mother was a narcissist, and so I have low self-esteem, and I don't think I'm good enough, and then I always find guys who treat me poorly. Like, we kind of connect the dots between what happened way back then with what's happening now, but we do it from this really victimized place, which means there's no access to power to change it. So what my friend said to me, actually, because I called her, you know, I, I really called her, she was one of my, my women friends, you know, where she was kind of in the center of all my dating drama and, you know, all of the many disappointments. And I had a crazy pattern of just find, somehow finding unavailable men all the time, no matter what I did or how hard I tried for it to go differently. It was always he was married or engaged or, you know, he was a workaholic or he had some kind of unfinished business. I mean, it was just uncanny, any size, shape, form, age, color, like no matter what occupation, it just was always down to some impossible situation. So I lived with a lot of disappointment and a lot of heartache. And I'd call my friend and complain about it. But one of the things that happened that preceded this kind of magical conversation with her is I started to work with the metaphysical principle of setting intentions. And I began to really see that it's the future we're standing for that defines our love life even more than the past we've endured. So I had actually called her that day to say to her, um, Naomi, that's my friend's name, Naomi, I'm going to set a really unreasonable, kind of crazy intention to be engaged by my 42nd birthday. And I was 41. That was eight months out. I had no prospect for a husband and I've been looking for 20 years. So it was a really ridiculous thing to say. But thank goodness she did not laugh at me. And actually what she said that kind of turned rocked my world is she said Catherine I'm going to hold that intention with you and for you if you give me permission to hold you accountable to being the woman you would need to be on your 42nd birthday to actually be engaged right so then we started talking and she started to really turn my attention around to looking to understand how I might be the source of the pattern felt like it was just happening to me against my will, like something was just sitting on my stars. But if I really took 100% responsibility for it, how might it be happening through me? And when I shifted my attention from, you know, running out to try and find love to just going within to begin to identify the hidden barriers I had built against it, that's when I began seeing 
all sorts of inner conflicts, all sorts of ways that I didn't really want to lose my freedom. I didn't want to be dominated by someone. I'm a creative person, a woman on a mission. And I had this idea that if I got into a relationship, it was going to somehow, you know, dampen that for me or take that away from me and, you know, ensure that I wouldn't become creative. I've since now in this model have discovered that at the time, you know, I had such a pattern of giving my pattern, my power away to men I was involved with that. No wonder I felt like, oh, I can't get in a relationship or I won't realize my potentials, right? Because I hadn't cleaned that up yet. Or I started to look at my beliefs about not really feeling um, valuable in the world, didn't really feel like uh, someone would really stand for me and give his life to me. Simple things, though, even too, just like even how I did my apartment. I just all these single things in my apartment. I had pictures of single women looking nobly off into space. And I just really started to see if I take 100% responsibility that I am the creator of my life, that there's all sorts of ways that there, I am incongruent with the future of love fulfilled. And that's what then became the calling in the one journey. Mm, wow. So Catherine, I also want to fast forward a little bit into that journey because it, it seemed like it was, there was a lot of touch and go, right? It wasn't always just a, an easy kind of sequential linear path. Um, and one part of the book that I remember um, was that even when you did meet your potential partner who went on to be your husband, um, when you guys went ring shopping, you also had mentioned that you had a little bit of a breakdown. And I wanted to also just talk about that moment that, you know, even through this process, like there's, it's, it's probably a never ending process of inquiry, right? Like there's a lot that you can clean up. Um, but I'm just, I'm curious if you could talk to us about that. Yeah. I love that you're bringing that incident up. Um, cause it's a real beautiful example of, of what it looked like, you know, inside of the I'm not valuable sense of self that I had around men. It's a perfect example of that, you know, and, you know, look, we're all pretty hip to where these, these things come from. And it's very clear to me that a big part of this I'm not valuable story that kind of lived in my body and would get activated whenever someone would reject me or I'd get disappointed or I was somehow uh, just feeling insecure or slighted, you know, that that's when the stories get triggered. You know, most of us are pretty competent, functional adults. And we're, you know, we, we're aware that we're pretty wonderful people until that moment where, you know, you feel vulnerable with someone and then they reject you. And then you go right back into that default story. So that's what we're talking about with the I'm not valuable. But I, I formed that story about that sense of self uh, back when I was 10 and my parents had had a really ugly divorce when I was a, a young girl. And my dad and mom never resolved that. They had a really, you know, contentious relationship with each other. So it's, of course, perfect for later on in life. I would create conscious uncoupling <laughs> to rectify <laughs> that. But at the time, I didn't know I was going to become the conscious uncoupling guru. So it was kind of torture. And I felt in between them. And at some point, when my mother remarried, she convinced my father to give up parental rights by uh, letting him know she was going to sue him for the back child support he owed her. 
And this is back in the 60s. So he owed her $5,000. That was like a year's salary back then. That was a huge amount of money. But in my little 10-year-old brain, I thought my father sold me for $5,000. So, right? so, and even my little 10-year-old brain knew that even for a year's salary, that was a really bad deal. And that, so I must not be very valuable. That's how that, you know, we make up meaning of these things. I work a lot uh, in the work that we're doing, not, not so much in that the healing of the ongoing trauma and, you know, how much I missed my dad and stuff. So, you know, you could, you could be working with that for the rest of your life. And by the way, I have a great relationship with that. My, my father now we've healed that, but at the time it lodged as the meaning, which is that I am not valuable and I'm kind of a throwaway. Like other people can easily just throw me away. So when I would bring that consciousness into relationships. So when I was, dating Mark. And then he, he proposed marriage to me. Um, we went ring shopping and as we're walking in the store, he tells me that what he has to spend is (laughs) (laughs) $5,000. And I just had this meltdown. I couldn't go in the store to receive it because it was just so outside of my identity that he would pledge his love to me and spend $5,000 on just this ring on a ring, not even like, you know, we're going to go, you know, put a down payment on a house or something. (laughs) It was just a silly ring, you know, which obviously had a lot of meaning to it. But so, so I was stretching to create a relationship that was outside of my old identity that I formed in response to childhood woundings and in particular to the meaning that I made of what happened way back then. And I do find that the most important transformation uh, for people to make in the calling in the one process is really to identify the core sense of identity that you landed upon in childhood in response to certain relational disappointments or relational traumas to name them, to, to, to even locate where they sit in your body when you get triggered and to ask yourself, how old am I here? And to start to mentor that part of you to a more empowered meaning, to kind of wake yourself up out of that trance. And so I can't remember the statement of truth that I created, I call them power statements to deconstruct that I'm not valuable. I think, I think, you know, I am a treasure unto all of life and I need do nothing to prove my value. You know, Mm. it's just inherent to who I am. And it's just this course correct in consciousness. And, you know, so it's not even a pushback, like I am too valuable because anytime you push back against something, the the deeper, the thing you're pushing against is what has the power. You know, Werner Earhart said, whatever you resist persists. So it's really what I'm, what I'm looking for is an awakening to what is actually true about me? What is actually the right sense of self for me to be centered in in life so that I'm not carting around that little 10-year-old who was so distraught that I didn't get to see my dad ever again, which is what I thought at the time. Um, but in it, And this is where the metaphysics come in. You know, Neville Goddard was a, a metaphysician. I think he was back in the 30s. He was kind of ahead of his time. He was a really interesting guy. 
Uh, and one of my favorite quotes by him is, you are free to choose the concept you will accept of yourself. Therefore, you possess the power of intervention, the power which enables you to alter the course of your future. The process of rising from your present concepts to a higher concept of yourself is the means of all true progress. So a lot of my work is about Um, You know, I'm a psychotherapist by trade. We're always going to be healing the past. Healing is a different domain than transformation. Transformation is about the future, not the past, and 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 the future you're standing for. So what I was doing in that moment, I was able to create a relationship that no longer reflected that I wasn't valuable, right? So inside of the, you know, not being chosen, all the time, men choosing other women over me, there was always this sense of being devalued, devalued. When Mark stood up and he said, you're the, you're the woman I choose, and I'm going to ante up, here's $5,000 for a ring, because that's how much you matter to me. It was, it was because I had created a relationship that was outside the story. And I am all about Uh, We're going to be healing forever, but we really want to transform how life is showing up. So how do you create outside of the stories of the wounds, outside of the patterns of the past? And so that's really what calling in the one is. And it's really challenging the old identity, naming it, challenging it, anchoring into a different sense of self and starting to organize your life from that center. How would a woman who values herself relate to herself? How would a woman who values herself be relating to others, be relating to life, and to start to cultivate those new ways of relating that will allow a new story to emerge? Oh, my gosh. Wow, Catherine. I'm, like, taking notes. <laughs> well, um, you know what I did, though? Can I just say something? I, yeah. Because all of I, – I learned this after I wrote Calling in the One. So Calling in the One, it has the foundations of what I'm talking about, but I've had the – amazing, remarkable privilege of working with tens of thousands of people now teaching them in my learning community. So I know now what the process is more clearly. So I actually rewrote Calling in the One and it came out last spring and all of this is laid out. So I, I kept as much as I could because people think of Calling in the One as such a profound journey for them and they love it so much. So I kept as much of the essence of the original book, but I put all of this into the, the latest book. Oh, wow. So you can actually walk through that journey of, of naming that false love identity, awakening to your true love identity, mapping out the old ways of showing up that have been generative of that story. See, when we're centered in the old story, I call it your false love identity, um, I'm not valuable, we're showing up in ways that literally pull on other people to mirror that story back to us. Mm. So how did I do that back then? I mean, we're talking now, you know, 20 something years ago, but I think what I was doing to devalue myself is, first of all, I wasn't waiting to see what someone was bringing to me or had to offer me before I kind of opened my heart, opened my open my home, open my bed, take all my clothes off and sleep with them. So that that was a way of devaluing myself. Uh, I might under-present myself, 
uh, to people. I might settle for crumbs and train them that that's okay for me, that I could be the second you know, person they thought of is after they thought of their wife or, you know, whatever it was, I was the one who was showing up in ways that was communicating or wasn't valuable. So the constant mirroring I had was that I wasn't valued. And it felt like it was just outside of me. But when you really start to unpack it, we're holding the power to transform our lives by centering in a deeper truth and starting to map out the new ways of relating that would be reflective of that. So I'm all about graduating from old patterns. Mm. Wow, you said a lot. So <laughs> I'm sort of wondering which um, which way to go. Which thread? Yeah, Sorry. which which thread? <laughs> which there's thread so many. I think up now. <laughs> there's so many good ones. I I'm so curious about how you were able to because because I think you know doing the work is one thing, but then keeping it in your consciousness is another thing. So I'm curious if you go back to this work or how long you went back to this work to really ingrain it in your system. And I'm also curious, you know, if you were able to sustain this feeling of self after you got married. Because I think a lot of people see marriage as like a finish line, but in many ways it's actually a starting line. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm curious, like those two questions. Well, this is such a wise question. Um, I think where we fall down is when we have a disappointment. So we can start all gun ho. I'm going to call in the one by my birthday. I'm going to do Catherine's program, <laughs> and then you, you know, then you meet someone. You know, ten days in, they're amazing, and you think this is you know, the breakthrough you've been waiting for. And then maybe that turns into another disappointment. And that's where a lot of people kind of collapse into the old story, give up, see it works for other people, not for me. So I think it's hard for us to hold possibility for ourselves in the face of disappointment. This is one reason that in the manuscript, Calling in the One, I have it written so you can do it with friends like you did, because when you have a disappointment, your friends can lift you up and hold the high watch for you while you're struggling to to get back there yourself into a place of possibility. Um, I think also what you're pointing to is that uh, marriage, uh, I think a lot of us do uh, think of marriage as just a matter of meeting the right person and getting the ring and the white picket fence and all of that. But you're right. All it is really is a contract, uh, an agreement to actually create Uh, a relationship. So how that relationship gets created in the marriage is what's most interesting about the marriage. And most of us idealize love and have kind of idealized relationships of romantic love. And uh, there is a big difference between falling in love and the creation of love every day and bringing yourself back to that person and staying highly engaged, highly interested Um, and uh, learning the nuances of that person and recognizing how different they are than you. Um, I think we also have a fantasy that when you meet the right person, they read your mind because you're so much alike. Uh, And, you know, maybe for a moment, but the truth is you have to develop the skills of, of really being able to 
um, be curious about someone who is very different than you, who doesn't think the way you do, who doesn't have the same frames of reference, who might even have different goals than you have, different agendas than you have, certainly different rhythms. And all great relationships have these areas of incompatibilities that are just kind of unresolvable. Like in my partnership, and I'm going to go back to, I, I did divorce my beautiful Mark, my 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 lovely husband after uh, 10 years of marriage. So I'm going to talk about why that was and what I now can see about that in answer to your question. But I have a beautiful partnership with my wonderful man, Michael, and I'm so grateful we're coming up on three years now, but we're completely incompatible when it comes to rhythms. Like, you know, Michael is very meticulous, very slow moving, extremely thoughtful, you know, and I'm the person who like wakes up almost, you know, in one breath out of the bed, have my cup of coffee down the stairs at the computer, you know, like I'm just a motion movement person. So sometimes, you know, that's been a bit hard because I want to go do something and he just wants to, he stops the action because he wants to really ask me about it and think about it. <laughs> Let's talk about this next week. And I'm like, next week I'll be, you know, onto like a whole nother thing next week. <laughs> so I think I just say that because I normalize that. And there are things that we need to learn about how to really love another human being who's kind of a foreign creature to us. And, uh, you know, we like to think that we're, you know, we know somebody, but I think, Marriage is the process of constantly learning somebody. Um, so we have to learn how to, to engage people respectfully when we get triggered and to unpack our assumptions. We certainly need to know our own assumptions and our own projections onto other people. You know, somebody sneezes and we think that that was, you know, we're going to go back to when my mother sneezed and was sick when I was three and I wasn't safe and they were going to abandon me. So, you know, then Michael sneezes and I think, oh my God, he's leaving. (laughs) So we, we do that, all of us, you know, faster than a breath. So we have to know ourselves and our own tendencies. So it's quite a journey, the awakened relationship, you know, it's quite a, a, a wonderful journey. Um, but I want to say that, you know, we all are on a growth path or else we wouldn't be so fascinated with these beautiful conversations you're creating for us, Yasmin. But um, we're all on this growth journey. And when I married Mark, you know, I had grown up in a home where um, I, I told you about the divorce and my mom was a single mother and went to work. She was actually putting herself through college. Then she got a job. Uh, so I was alone a lot as a child. I was one of the the earlier latchkey kids. Uh, you know, back in the '80s was when the most the most unparented generation was back in the '80s. There was the most latchkey kids because of the divorce revolution in the '70s. You know, once once Ronald Reagan signed the no fault divorce law uh, in in 1969 in California, it started to unleash this tidal waves of divorce that swept our country in here in the USA. I imagine we have international listeners too, but here in the USA. And and then of course the mothers went to work and a lot of us were left kind of on our own. So that was my story. So here I am in this relationship with Mark, who's this really great guy. And I, I start having all this success in my career and I just kind of just got swept away in my enthusiasm for my work. And it didn't occur to me that I needed to bring Mark with me on the inside. You know, he had his work, 
I had my work, then we had a child. And so our relationship kind of drifted apart, mostly because I didn't understand how you really have to, in a in any committed relationship, be inclusive and turn towards conflict, turn towards misunderstandings, turn towards that person, constantly engaging that person, getting interested in them, uh, sharing what's happening for you so that they stay interested in you. So Mark and I just kind of drifted apart in large part because I did not have this development about how to generate weeness in a relationship. Which So Michael and I do that now quite a bit. He's great at it. He had a 30-year marriage to a wonderful woman. He'd been a widower for 10 years. And by the way, in my my calling in the one process that I did again, I was consciously uh, really looking for a man who'd had a very long and happy marriage because I wanted a man who really knew how to love a woman. Mm -hmm. And boy, did I find that in Michael. So I'm learning all the time from him how to have a great relationship. Mm, Wow. Wow. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your journey. And wow, what a journey. What a journey. And I love that you use the calling in the one work again um, for this other uh, partnership with, uh, with Mike. Was it Michael? Second. Michael. Michael. That's how I created the CD. Because I'm a singer songwriter, but I hadn't really done anything with music for a long time. And um, I decided I met the wonderful Corin brothers, Torald and Isaac, who work with people, developing artists. And um, and I, 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 I wanted to create almost like a living vision board of what that relationship feels like. So I wrote a whole CD that's kind of the journey of losing love and forgiveness and opening to possibility again. The one song I was struggling to write, and this goes back to your other question about how do you keep possibility alive, you know? Um, I, I was struggling to write the having of the relationship. I could write the, you know, I'm feeling hopeful, it's coming, it's on its way. But what about the having of it? What does it feel like to actually have it? So I, I felt a little blocked there. And I think we all have our reasons why we're, you know, it's not really possible for us. I think for me, I just turned 60 and I'm thinking, gosh, maybe it's too late for me. Even, you know, the queen of calling in the one over here, we're all human. Okay. And it's hard to create from the future and hold possibilities. So I called Isaac uh, Corin, who was working on the CD with me. And I said, you know, I, I'm struggling with this a little bit. After we spoke for about 45 minutes, I was really lit up. I got it. I was in possibility. And I sat down and I wrote these uh, lyrics. And I'll just share the first lyrics with you. Sitting by the fire on a Saturday night, reading David White by the flickering light, I look up and you're smiling. It's only been a year since the night that we wed when we danced till dawn, then the flowers in our bed as the sun started rising. So for those of you who don't know, David White is a beautiful poet. And um, and I didn't have a name for the song, but we were just kind of calling it the love song or something. And I, we went in and recorded it. And uh, a few weeks later, I met Michael. Wow. And within three weeks of dating, without knowing the lyrics to this song, he sent me a David White poem. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I love that so much. 
Wow. So we get this little, you know, synchronicities and sign along the way when you're when you're creating <laughs> from intuition, which you're a master of. I know that about you. And um, and that was beautiful. And so you know, and the song is now called Michael's Song. And um, so before the CD came out, I was able to retitle it Michael's Song. And our relationship is that song. Like all the lyrics of it, they all came true. Mm. So, you know, we talk about vision boards and stuff, but here's the magic of a vision board or if you're going to write a song or a piece of poetry. The value of the vision board is not that you're creating some piece of art, which is nice to look at and hopeful. The value of it is you're trying that future on in your body. Like what does it actually feel like to have this? What is it? And you want to engage your senses as much as possible. What does it smell like? What does it sound like? What does it taste like? So that you're actually in consciousness becoming that version of yourself. And that's when things start to really shift and the magic starts to really flow. And that is what happened when I called Michael into my life. Wow. Wow. So Catherine, do you do this work in like the morning, do you do it in the afternoon? Like, is there a specific time uh, that you check in? And also like now that you're in this relationship and things are flowing and things are great, like how much effort do you put in with this kind of future forward uh, looking relationship? Like, how do you, how do you sustain it every day? Cause I think, yeah, I'm just curious, like what your model and what your process is, if you could share. Thank maybe. you. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, I'm a lifelong learner, and I do think um, that it's important to remember number one, if you're struggling with painful patterns, there's actually things that I'm calling missing development the inability to self soothe or the inability to really differentiate healthy needs from unhealthy needs. That's, that's all what I'm calling development. So it's important that you're able to isolate what is missing in your own development. And usually it shows up like a complaint or like we feel victimized. Like, I can't set boundaries. I don't know why. You know, it's like it comes up like a negative, right? I don't know what's wrong with me. So so then you say, okay, I, I need to learn about boundaries. Because we, we get stopped there and then we get depressed and then we go eat haagen or something, you know, in our sweats. So, oh, oh I'm sorry. That was just me. No, no. So what we do, that's what I do. Okay. So, so I think it's important. So what I do... And I do think the morning is great because with calling in the one in particular, it does it it lays that development out for you. A lot of people do it who are in relationship, oh, by the way, because they want to better their relationship. And that's the intention that they set. So you could do it for that. But you do the work in the morning. And then I give something called a bonus practice and action where you're out in the day and you're integrating that into your life. So it's always great to do that because then you have the whole day to practice that. What I do now is I look for, uh, I'm kind of a, a junkie to see what the work is that lots of people are doing. I like a lot of the work that pe- my colleagues are doing in the realm of relationship. Um, but I will say that the majority of couples work um, is missing some of the deeper dimensions of what we psychologist people call projective identification. And that's the kind of the knee-jerk worldview that we default to in a moment when we're triggered or disappointed. It's kind of the the water we're swimming in. My friend, I mentioned uh, Polly Young-Eisendrath, I think, before. My my friend Polly 
uh, cause it that we're all in our own individual snow globes. So um, I I do read um, right now, you know, I'm reading a lot of the things that Polly is putting out into the world because she does work with that intersubjective, that deeper dimension of what I'm just assuming you're thinking. Um, and also, but there's also some, you know, wonderful um, teachers, Patricia Albert, who's not necessarily a relationship teacher, but she has a wonderful book that I wrote a forward to about evolutionary relationships and a whole thing about trust and really understanding the cultivation of trust. Um, I think these things need to really be understood. So, for example, a lot of us aspire to unconditional love in our relationships, which is beautiful. It's what we all long for. Yet we have to also respect that relationships are not unconditional because they, they rely on trust. And trust is a conditional phenomenon. So in her book, uh, Relation, Evolutionary Relationships, Patricia's unpacking trust and how to build trust. So we're talking now about growing our capacities to love or aligning our integrity, being a person of our word, you know, all these things that actually create healthy relationships. So I'm a real advocate of healthy relationships. And um, I don't know that I have so much a daily morning practice in this moment of cultivating those relationship skills because I kind of cultivate them with Michael. We'll read together. We'll uh, practice we actually just uh, last last month took a 3,000-mile trip across the country to go sit with Polly and learn her techniques. So we were there with her for a week. So I am a lifelong student of love. Mm. And, um, and I have a, a deep devotion to staying, in, uh, staying engaged in my own evolution and my own growth and development. Um, I will say that there's a common mis- there's a common assumption in the in the culture, and this is because some of my colleagues actually say this, that the purpose of love is to heal each other, and I do not agree with that. I think that when you're when you really have true love, you you uh, develop yourself to the point where you can have true love with another person. That healing happens all the time between you, but that the purpose of the relationship is to bless the community. Mm, wow. That is so powerful. And I just love that so much. Um, yeah. And I think that the blessing of the community feels like something I haven't heard before. So I just, I love that you went there. And because I think so much about what people perceive to be in relationship is what can I get for myself? I mean, I think that's sort of like maybe the main mainstream perspective. And it's certainly not what can I give to another and what can I give to my community? So I really love that. And Catherine, you mentioned Polly. Can you tell me how to spell her name just so we can make yeah, sure? Yeah, that- it's a little, yeah, Polly, P-O-L-L-Y, Young, Y-O-U-N-G, dash, Eisendrat. That's the, that's a confusing one. E-I-S-E-N-D-R-A-T-H. And her book that I was referring to is called Love Between Equals. And I also mentioned Patricia Albert, and her last name is A-L-B-E-R-E. Okay, perfect. Great. Awesome. We will add those. So, Catherine, I know we're um, running close to time, but I I wanted to just ask you about – 
the conscious uncoupling movement and why you started that. I think a lot of people uh, in my community, and uh, I used to live in San Francisco um, and now live in Los Angeles, but a lot of people have been talking about this concept of, you know, because I think so many of us, especially in our lifetime, go through so many more, more relationships than maybe our our parents' generation and their grandparents. And so I think what I have been noticing is that there's just so much heartbreak because I think a lot of us don't know how to be in a relationship and we certainly don't know how to exit relationship. <laughs> so um, I love that you started this movement and I'm wondering if you could just talk to us about it at a high level. Yeah. Thank you so much for that invitation. Um, I created it back in 2011 and then Gwyneth popped it into the lexicon in 2014, which I think was an extraordinary contribution because it opened up this whole new possibility before that. No one was talking about this. I mean, there was amicable divorce, you know, it was always an option and collaborative divorce kind of existed in the background, but she really put it into the public conversation. And I think one of the proudest moments of my life was when the dictionary, the, the dictionary, online dictionary, defined conscious uncoupling the day after she kicked it into the lexicon as redefining divorce in the 21st century. For me, having come from that kind of toxic, nasty, super damaging, hostile divorce between my parents, I felt like I had taken the worst of my wound and made it into, I, I, I had spun straw into gold. Remember that fairy tale? I spun straw <laughs> into gold and, and I felt beautiful about that. But I will say that there are certain misconceptions that people have about conscious uncoupling from Gwyneth and Chris, which is that it's kind of the wealthy person's version of an amicable divorce. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that only people who are divorced and, you know, fabulously wealthy and beautiful can have it. So, um, and two people do it together. So that's not how it goes. Um, usually when we're separating, whether it's divorce or a breakup, um, we're, we're kind of on our own to figure out the terrain mm. and we feel very abandoned. We feel crushed, hurt, lost. Uh, we might be feeling things like rage that we're not used to feeling because most of us are pretty nice people. Certainly everyone listening to this wonderful podcast. So, uh, we, we get very swept up in these very big, overwhelming emotions and how to take those negative emotions and work with them and actually transform them into the energies of positive change to point them in the direction of growth is the first step of conscious uncoupling. Five-step process is created because we don't do this very well. Uh, we do tend to go into fight or flight. I'm going to die without this person or my whole life is being threatened, so I'm going to go to war. I think it's an evolutionary hybrid from a thousand years ago. If you wandered away from your tribe, you probably wouldn't die. And it doesn't help that 400 years ago, we came up with this myth of the happily ever after story. So all of us are kind of covertly holding ourselves and each other accountable to this, you know, this ideal. And if we part ways from someone before one or both people die, it is considered a failure. So there's a lot of shame attached. So it's a very fraught time. And most of us get kind of sucked under and begin behaving in ways that are quite toxic and self-destructive. You know, even going to attorneys right away and burning through the child's, you know, college fund, unfortunately, is a very typical story. So I've given people this five-step process to help us 
to part ways in a way that does not create bad karma moving forward where you're kind of, you've planted bitter seeds in your backyard, bitter seeds in your backyard. You're going to be eating bitter fruits for many years to come. So how do you do this in a way that is in alignment with who you are, your own good character, your own ethics? How do you do it in a way that doesn't screw your kids up or doesn't set you up for failure in love moving forward, but actually helps you to learn lessons so that you're more equipped to love more beautifully on the other side of this? Uh, The second step is about how do you take responsibility, especially when somebody's really wronged you? That's not an easy thing. Or how do you take responsibility for your part in a way that would help you to grow as opposed to get you stuck in shame? See, I always do this. What's wrong with me? I'm so screwed up from my childhood. (laughs) And then we get stuck there, right? No, it's like to really, really examine your part. And and, And usually we're so filled with what the other person did that was so egregious and wrong. And generally we're right about that. So I just say, look, 97% the other person. What's your 3%? Because that's where the gold is for you. Mm. Then we move into step three, and that has to do with going back to that, what I was calling your false love identity. And in conscious uncoupling, I refer to it as your source fracture, the original break in your heart, and what you made that mean about you, and how you've been showing up from that story in ways that recreate it, because usually if someone has been left, and you know, there's a difference between someone who leaves and someone who is left. And so the person who is left is generally uh, the person who's really suffering the most. And that's generally who's picking up the conscious uncoupling book or going to a coach and, you know, getting some support. Uh, we also have a, a wonderful Mind Valley quest in both calling in the one and conscious uncoupling. But, um, but it really helps to get you back in your power. The, the first three steps and then steps four and five are how do you show up classy? How do you show up in a way that is generative of a positive possible future for all, particularly your children if you have kids? How do you show up in a way that is like genuinely disappearing the negative residue in the field between yourself and that person? So you're not kind of stepping over, you know, landmines as you're trying to navigate holidays with your kids. And how do you set up structures that are really kind of affirming the goodness of life and generous and win-win for everybody. Um, and, and just thinking in terms of, of the good of the whole, as opposed to just your own personal survival instinct that might be up. Mm. Wow. And does this work, uh, on your own or do you need to do this with the partner that you're uncoupling from? Definitely on your own. I wrote it for that. Sometimes people do do it with their partner, but I always tell them, even if you're doing it with your partner, you guys are probably going to go at different paces through the program. You might not, you know, you might not be able to really talk about some of the things that you're learning about yourself because maybe the other person isn't available. So, you know, you're not in sync with that person. And sometimes we have this fantasy that everything's going to get worked out with that other person but what conscious uncoupling is about is being at peace yourself and and learning the difficult life lessons and one of them is that sometimes our bad behavior costs love or even our you know or or our habitually uh toxic ways of trying to create safety and love like self-abandonment or people pleasing or disappearing ourselves 
uh, and just kind of catering to the needs of other people or dismissing her own deeper knowing, turning away from the red flags, like all those things that we do that we think are so, you know, just hurting ourselves maybe, that they cost the relationship big time. And you can lose love because of them because it gets sick. So you can really get your life out of how you do your uncoupling process and have a whole awakening to a whole new level of self-love and capacity to love another human being. And that's basically what the program is. And I, I, I think that most of the people who go through it do it on their own, probably at least 90% do it on their own. Wonderful. And then we'll leave that the Mind Valley course. Uh, I'm actually a part of Mind Valley myself, so I've done a lot of the courses. I didn't know that you had calling in the one uh, on the Mind Valley. We're just launching it. Yeah, we're launching it. Oh, uh, so brand new. Oh, great, great, wonderful. That will help a lot of people. So, uh, Catherine, uh, last couple questions because we are a little over time, but you are just such a wealth of information, and I'm just so inspired and moved by our conversation, and you've given me a lot to think about. Uh, I've taken a lot of notes. And so I'm wondering what sort of things have surprised you on this journey over the last however many years, 20, 30 years, um, that you've been uh doing this work from calling in the one to conscious uncoupling, what sort of surprised you the most? Well, you know, I'm 64 and I actually have been doing some form of spiritual work since the age of 14. So it's actually 50 years, but I was um, pretty messed up as a young person and I had a lot of pain and a lot of grief and I had a a food addiction where I was acting out uh, quite severely in a way that was, really disabling. I couldn't even really hold a job. I was so unwell. And that started me on a really deep, committed, devoted journey to healing myself and to transforming my life. I think the biggest surprise is at some point, I remember back then I felt like I didn't know if it would ever end. And I didn't know if there was a point you got to where life would be so beautiful and so happy. And so the biggest surprise is how happy I am and how well I am and what a joy my relationship is. Um, sometimes Michael and I just, just laugh just cause it's so great to be together. We just, we don't even have to say anything. We look at each other and we just start laughing So I think I just want to let everyone know who's working so hard on themselves that there really is an end point to the journey. But again, start with the future, not your past. You know, there's a time to grieve the past, and then there's a time to generate the future. And so that future is possible for all of us. We are powerful beyond measure, and we do indeed have the power to create um, miracles of love in our lives. Oh, Beautiful, beautiful, Catherine. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. What a journey. And um, are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you? Thank you. I have, um, if you go to CatherineWoodwardThomas.com, I have a sign up for what I call the the Love Out Loud. And that's just a weekly teaching that I send out to everyone. It's usually kind of half prayer, half or I don't know, half prayer. It's, it's, it's a quarter prayer, quarter teaching, a quarter um, 
you know, poetry and uh, I don't know, quarter storytelling. It's just, it, it, it's just 300 words, but they're very poignant. And um, if you sign up for that, they're free. Then I can just start inviting you to a lot of the free calls that we do. We, we try and host a lot of free calls for the community. There are a lot of things that we're doing in our universe and, um, and, and continuing to expand. So that, that's the invitation I have for everyone. Mm. Thank you so much, Catherine. This was so lovely and I'm just so enriched by this conversation. I know it's going to help a lot of people. I think a lot of people are really suffering right now and going through many transitions, especially over the last year in the pandemic. Um, yeah, I'm just so grateful for your time and I have so much to think about. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about calling in the one and conscious uncoupling, and you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.